Grace Church. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I'd love for you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. You could use one of those pew Bibles in, uh, in front of you as well. It's page 809 in those pew Bibles there. This is uh, the beginning of a, a text that is referred to often as the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the phrase that, or, or the idea that God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. Uh, perhaps you, you heard it applied in a particular area of life that when it comes to marriage, that God isn't really concerned about your happiness, he's concerned about your holiness. Or when it comes to parenting, that our job as parents is to, to make our kids holy, not happy. Or maybe your involvement in the, in the church, that you're here and you're serving, you know, God's concerned about your holiness, not your happiness. And it's uh, on memes and mugs and bumper stickers. It's out there in the world. I'm pretty sure I've said something like this before, but is it true? Like, is it, is it true that God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness? I mean, we know from Scripture that there's no question God is concerned about his holiness, right? The angels right now are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Like we just sang the Revelation song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is their, their chant. They are singing this, right? They're concerned about God's holiness. We know that God chose us in him before the creation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians. Before the creation of the world, God chose you to be holy. God is so concerned about his holiness and your holiness. We know that's certain. Does that mean he's not, not concerned about your happiness? Does it mean he doesn't care that he wants you to be holy at the expense of your happiness? Because here we are, we're in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 is probably the greatest teaching on holiness ever. I mean, Jesus comes in, he ups the ante on everything. He's like, you, you heard about murder? Murder's not good. No, no, no. I tell you, don't even be angry with someone in your heart. That's holy. Right? He's like, you heard about adultery? Don't like sleep with another man's wife. No, I say, don't even lust after another man's wife. That's, that's holy. So this, you know, you've heard it said, love your, your friends, hate your enemies. No, I tell you, love your enemies. That's a whole new level of holiness. And then at the end of chapter five, it ends with Jesus saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is holy. Jesus is committed to your holiness. He, he ends chapter five with your holiness. But how does he start? 
starts with the section here that's often referred to as the Beatitudes, these blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Blessed, that's not really like a really, uh, like a normal everyday word. It's one of those Christianese words. We use it in church, you know, maybe like hashtag blessed or, you know, bless your heart or, you know, oh, which doesn't mean anything about blessing, uh, apparently. Uh, but it's not, it's not a real word. But if you, you go and you, you kind of study the, the, the scholars and the commentators, they say, the word, it means to be fortunate. And some, some scholars and commentators, they, they push so far as to say that the original audience, as they were hearing this, what they would have been hearing is something like happy. Happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. And happy are the meek. And happy are those who mourn even. Happy, happy, happy. Jesus ends Matthew 5 with your holiness. But don't miss this. He starts with your happiness. Jesus doesn't want you to be holy at the expense of your happiness. He wants you to be holy for your happiness. These two things, they're, they're, they're not at odds. They're not in contrast to one another. The two go together in Jesus' mind, right? Even in that, that text that was read for us earlier from John 15, Jesus says, I, I want to abide in you and you abide in me and I want you to bear much fruit and I want you to pray these bold prayers. And I want to answer those prayers. And why does he say this? He says, so my joy, he says, so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. When the angels show up, the angels show up. When Jesus is born, they show up to a bunch of shepherds, right? What do they say? They say, fear not, fear not. I have great news for you guys. That's what, going to make you feel like kind of melancholy? It's going to make you feel ambivalent? No, that's going to bring great joy. Jesus even tells a parable at one point, a parable that kind of describes what it's like when people discover him. He says, it's like this, a man goes out and he finds this treasure in a field. He goes out and he finds this treasure in a field and it says that in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells everything to get that treasure. Jesus is like, yeah, guys, just, just wait, just wait and see, I am going to make you so happy. Not just a little happy, but joy to the full, he says in, in John 15. Joy to the full. Like, that's real joy. Jesus wants you to be holy for your happiness, not at the expense of your happiness. Now, of course, when we talk about joy, we have to make sure that we're talking about Jesus' definition of joy. That we don't just, you know, kind of make up our own definition of this. He, when he, he says he wants you to have joy to the full, he's not saying you're going to walk around with a smile on your face all the time or that you're going to have this constant state of elation or you're going to be free from any pain or sorrow or anything like that. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the great 20th century preacher, he, he put it this way. He says, in our definition of joy, we must be very careful that it conforms to what we see in our Lord. He says, uh, if you want to advance to the next slide. The world has never seen anyone who knew joy as our Lord knew it. And yet, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So our definition of joy must somehow correspond to that. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the prophet tells us. In fact, the night that Jesus was betrayed and given over to die, he's with his disciples and he tells them, guys, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Some of you don't even have to imagine what that's like because you know you've been in that place where the grief and the sorrow, it was so intense, it was so powerful that it just felt like the grief and the sorrow itself might kill you in that moment. You know this. And Jesus was in this place where he was sorrowful to the point of 
of death. Like, I think this is going to kill me. And yet, even in that place, sorrowful to the point of death, the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Sorrowful, and yet still driven by this powerful experience of joy. Sorrowful, and yet rejoicing. And psychologists actually have a term for this. It's called uh, subjective well-being. It's a great term, subjective well-being. And subjective well-being actually has a few components to it. It has this this first component of a, a cognitive life satisfaction. So it's a little more left brain. It's kind of like you have a, in your thought life, you kind of have a positive outlook about your life. You're satisfied with your life and and the way you think about it. But it also includes positive emotions, which I think is really important because I think sometimes in Christian circles, we redefine joy so much that we just talk about like, oh, it's a mindset and we get rid of the emotions entirely, but that is not biblical joy. Like there is a positive emotion that comes with joy in scripture. And so it has these positive emotions with it, but super important, it also includes this negative affect or this negative emotion. So it's not that the positive emotions negate or eliminate the negative emotions. It's that the positive emotions somehow outshine the negative emotions where you could actually experience sorrow. You feel that, but you have this joy that's even, it it burns brighter. Now that sounds super abstract. So let me give you an example. So on uh, October 6th, 2008, my mom was killed in a car accident. It's like, she caught us by surprise out of nowhere. That was October 6th, 2008. October 5th, 2013, I married Lindsay. You don't know her, but if you did, you'd know I am smiling. Uh, so this is like almost five years later to the day I got to marry my wife. That, mean, that means that the anniversary of the saddest day of my life and the anniversary of the happiest day of my life are only a day apart. I remember being at my wedding, and my mom's absence was, it was palpable. For me, for a lot of the other guests, especially because we knew the next day was the five-year anniversary of her passing, like there was, there was grief, there was sorrow. I felt it. Other people felt it that day. And yet, sorrow and grief did not win the day because I was marrying Lindsay. Again, if you knew her, you would know why the joy was able to outshine the sorrow. Because we're, we're complex creatures created in the image of God. We can feel two things simultaneously. We can feel sorrow and joy. But the, the joy that's talked about in Scripture is not a joy or an experience of happiness that negates or eliminates the negative feelings. But it's a joy and a, a positive affect that actually just outshines. It shines brighter. And you guys know what this is. I'm sure you've experienced moments of subjective well-being, where you you had negative emotions, but the positive were just able to shine brighter in those moments. And I'm sure we've all experienced isolated moments of this. But get this, Jesus doesn't want you to experience isolated moments of joy. He wants your joy to be to the full. The fullness of joy, that his joy would be in you, and you would experience joy to the full. Complete joy. But I don't know if that's always our experience. I mean, it sounds great, but I don't know if that's always our experience as Christians. That joy to the full, that what I would call a persistent subjective well-being, rooted in Christ. It's persistent. Like the ups and downs of life, they come, there's sorrow, there's all of that, but still there's this persistent subjective well-being where the joy is able to outshine. That's what Jesus wants to cultivate in us, but is that 
what is being cultivated in us. What do we do about that? I think sometimes as Christians, we can kind of just throw up our hands and say, well, if I, I get it, I get it. But if I don't, well, you know, joy, maybe joy, persistent joy is for the next life. This life, I'm just going to grit my teeth and I'm going to power through. I'm going to bear down and like all this grit and determination is going to get me through. And then joy is in the life to come. I don't think that's a good plan. Actually, I think it's a dangerous plan for us to to leave joy up to, to chance for a couple of reasons. One, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? That's not my idea. That's, that's the Bible's idea. Like, this is, this is scripture saying the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you know the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes back after the exile. He starts to rebuild the city, and there's this moment where the priest comes, and he reads the word of God for this, the Israelites in a way that they haven't probably heard it in their lifetime, and it cuts them to the heart, and they're just convicted about their sin, and they're weeping, and they're grieving, and Nehemiah interrupts them. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Of course, grief over sin, that's, that's fine and good. Like, we should actually be grieved about your sin. But grief over sin, that's not what's going to strengthen you to resist sin. If that was enough, then, then the law would be enough. No, no, no. It's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And a joyless Christian is a, a weak and vulnerable Christian. King David, like, you know, King David, who has a boy, killed a giant. That King David grows up, and he does the unthinkable. He sleeps with another man's wife, and then he has that other man killed. It's awful. It's like, how could this happen to David, the man after God's own heart? And afterward, David writes a song, uh, Psalm 51, which back in the 90s was turned back into a song, Created Me a Clean Heart. Do you guys know this song? God goes, create in me a clean heart. If you know it, can you just help me out here? Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. You guys sound great. Keep going. Uh, Let's do that one more time. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. And he says, cast me not away, right? Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. All right. If you don't know the words, it comes from Psalm 51. And I want you to just think about this for a second. Cast me not away from your presence, O God. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. So it seems to be implying that he has the presence of God. He doesn't want to lose it. He has it, and he doesn't want to lose it. He has the Spirit of God. He has it, and he doesn't want to lose it. So David was able to sleep with Bathsheba with the spirit of God and with the presence of God, but something was missing. Something needed to be restored. What was it that needed to be restored? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, I don't think David lost the joy of his salvation because he slept with Bathsheba. I think David slept with Bathsheba because he had lost the joy of his salvation. He was up one night and he just wasn't happy. Something was missing. There was this, the negative affect was winning out in his life, and he couldn't sleep, and he looks across the rooftop, and he says, hmm, that's it. That's the thing that's going to make me happy. That's going to bring me joy. Because all of us, we are going to do what makes us happy. It's just, we are. The, the famous uh, 17th century philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, he, he said, all men seek happiness. 
This is without exception. Some, what are, what are they, uh, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. All men seek happiness. Like what drives you and what drives me is our pursuit of happiness. We are going to pursue it. St. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, he puts it this way. He says, does anyone desire anything for any other reason than to secure their happiness? Right? We are go- you are going to secure your happiness. And if your happiness isn't rooted in Christ, you are going to go looking for it elsewhere. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and to be a joyless Christian, wow, it's to be a weak and vulnerable Christian. You are setting yourself up for temptation to just come and tear you down. The joy of the Lord is your strength, but the joy of the Lord is also your witness, right? In in this passage in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does all this talk about happy are, happy are, happy are. And then he's going to get into this whole discourse about what holiness looks like. But right in between, right, at the intersection of your happiness and your holiness, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Sometimes I think as Christians, we think our holiness by itself is going to make us shiny and savory. But no, it's, it's actually our holiness with our happiness. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, he calls the, the Philippians out and he says, you guys are going to shine like stars in this generation. I see it. You guys are going to shine like stars in this generation. He calls them to obedience, but not by itself. He says, if you're going to do this, you have to do it without grumbling and complaining. That's what's going to make you shine. He even pushes a little farther and say, do it with rejoicing and gladness because it's our holiness with our happiness that actually causes us to shine in this generation, and to, to be savory to the world around us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he says, in a sense, an unhappy Christian is a contradiction in terms. He's a very poor recommendation for the gospel. We are living in a pragmatic age. People today are not primarily interested in truth, but they're interested in results. He was writing like 70 years ago. If people were interested in results back then, they're only more so today. Right? He says, the one question they ask is, does it work? Like the, the world around you is they're looking around you. And if, if we're joyless Christians, they're going to see us. And they're like, I see what you're doing. I don't think it's working. I don't know if I want, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. Right? Sheldon Van Auken, he says, the best argument for Christians is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christian, Christianity is also Christians, when they're somber and joyless, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Or Charles Spurgeon, he says, let us show to the people of the world who think our religion to be slavery that it is to us a delight and a joy. Let our gladness proclaim that we serve a good God. The joy of the Lord is your witness. It's what makes you shiny. It's what makes you savory to the world around you. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is too important for us to just kind of say, ah, well, if I get it, I get it. But the difficult part is, like, what do you do? If you don't have joy, what do you do? (laughs) Right? You can't just, like, flip a switch and be like, oh, I'm happy now. Like, if you could figure that out, 
you would be a very wealthy person. There's a lot of people who'd line up to say, hey, how can I flip that switch? But we can't just flip a switch, which causes us to step back and say, oh, I guess there isn't anything I could do, but that's not true. Just because we can't make it happen immediately doesn't mean we're powerless to, to create change in our life when it comes to joy. Not to pursue joy, but to cultivate joy in our hearts over the truth of who Jesus is. There's actually been a lot of research done on happiness, as you might imagine, because it's a thing everybody wants. Uh, and so people are willing to pay. Like, hey, how do we become happy? You know, one of the biggest factors, one of the biggest factors contributing to someone's subjective well-being? Genetics. Who knew? Like 30 to 40% of the pie contributing to someone's subjective well-being is it, it followed you out of the womb. It's, just, it's how you were born. Which means that for, for some of us, the, the journey to joy is going to be a, a harder battle than for others. It's going to be hard for all of us because all of us have broken, distorted flesh, right? We, we're born in, not only into a broken world, we are born with broken bodies, right? It's in our flesh that our flesh doesn't want to find joy in the Lord. But again, that doesn't mean we're powerless. That's like 30, 40, that means like a third of the pie might be genetics. But you still have power here. You still have power to do something, a, a discipline, something that you can do now that over time can cultivate joy in the Lord in your heart. And it's a discipline, a practice that Followers uh, of Jesus have been practicing for 2,000 years, and, and even before that, God's people have been practicing for thousands of years. And it's a, a discipline and a practice of rejoicing, of celebrating. It might sound strange to call it a, a discipline or a practice because rejoicing, it sounds kind of like, well, isn't that the byproduct of something? Like when something good happens, you rejoice. Like joy, rejoicing is the result of something. And it's true. It can be that. But throughout scriptures, we see over and over again that rejoicing is something that we can choose to do to actually cultivate, to nurture our experience of joy in the Lord. In fact, the very first command, the very first imperative in all of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great teaching on holies, the very first command is for you to rejoice. Before anything else, before Jesus tells you to do anything else, it says rejoice. Because rejoicing is, is a choice. It's something that we can do. And there's two, two areas, two moments in our lives that I want to put before you as opportunities for us to rejoice, to cultivate this joy in the Lord that's going to make us strong and savory. And the first one, here in our text, Jesus in uh, verse 11, notice how he changes the subject. So he's been talking about the abstract this whole time, like blessed are, blessed are those, blessed are those. And then he changes, he says, no, no, no. Now I'm going to make it less abstract. I'm going to make it about you. I'm going to say blessed are you. Blessed are you when all this bad stuff happens. And he focuses now on persecution, but obviously all of these, these moments of hardship apply to it. He says, in these hardships, you get to do something here. You get to rejoice. That's a command. It's an imperative. Do something with it. That moments of hardship are opportunities for us to rejoice in the Lord in a really unique and special way. James, the brother of Jesus, he actually says, hey guys, I consider it pure joy whenever I face trials of any kind, any of these, because it's a moment, it's an opportunity for us to cultivate joy in our salvation, in his salvation. Right? And let, me, let me give you an example of what this might look like. So 
do me a favor and just bring to mind uh, a, a maybe not so great experience from the week. It doesn't have to be a big thing, just a moment where maybe the negative affect was surpassing the positive just a little bit. Could just be something as simple as you know somebody critiquing you or a difficult conversation that you had, and you know maybe for some of you like you actually you went through something this week, and so there's there's actually like real pain and grief there. But just do me a favor, bring that to mind for just a second. Sorry to do this, by the way, if you like actually had something painful, uh, but I, I hope it'll be worth it. <laughs> so bring it to mind. Now this next part, for it to work, you actually have to believe Jesus. When I say believe Jesus, I don't mean just believe that he existed or even just believe that he rose from the dead, but I mean, like, take him at his word. Believe what he said to, is true. Believe him. All right, so just take that feeling, that whatever you were feeling this week, in that moment of hardship, and if, if Jesus' words are true, that pain, however severe or minor it was, doesn't compare to the the hellish experience that should have been your forever future. Like if you take that that moment of pain, however severe, and you multiply it infinitely and you extend it to eternity, that is what should have been my forever future, your forever future. That pain, that angst, that hurt, like that, that should have been forever to the nth degree except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. Now, that hellish experience that should have been my forever future, it has an expiration date. It's going to stop. I'm not going to stop. I don't have an expiration date, but that hellish experience, that is going to end because of the grace of God. And that that in and of itself is cause for rejoicing, but, but we can take it further. We take it further because... There's a reason that, that that pain has an expiration date. And the reason is because Jesus took the fullness of that forever future and he bore it out in his flesh for you. That pain, that hurt, that hardship, whatever you were feeling, however severe, was just, just not even scratching the surface of the hell that Jesus bore on the cross for you. It's just just the aroma. It's just the aroma of a cup that Jesus drank down to the dregs for you. And when he, he finished the last drop, he took that cup and he turned it over and he said, it is finished. I don't know about you, but I think that's cause for rejoicing that the father would send his son to experience the fullness of what my pain is just hinting toward. He took the fullness of that so that we'd have this this reward in heaven. When Jesus tells us to rejoice in our suffering, he's not saying, hey, rejoice because the suffering itself is good. No, he says, rejoice because you have this great reward in heaven. And we can take every moment of hardship and we can use it as an opportunity. Jesus is saying, seize the opportunity right here. There's a moment for you to, in, in an emotional way, experience joy to rejoice that what, what you're experiencing right now is not going to be your forever future because Jesus bore it on the cross for you. We can rejoice in moments of hardship, but we can also rejoice in, 
in moments of spontaneous joy when like good things happen to us. And that doesn't sound like you need to do that intentionally. It just kind of happens as a result. But but get this, Jesus, at one point, he sends the disciples out on this little short-term mission trip, and they come back. And if you know the story, they come back, and they're so excited. They're like, oh, man, Jesus, even the demons submitted to us. It was amazing. Like, I don't know, anybody do any short-term mission trips ever? You ever, like, kind of go out and come back? Some of you. Uh, well, if you've done it, you know, like, you come back, and you're on fire. And so they're on fire, and Jesus actually says, you guys are rejoicing, but actually don't, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. No. Don't rejoice in that. He says, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that your name is written. So is Jesus saying like, oh, you can't take any pleasure from ministry success? Well, of course not. We're just going to feel that. What Jesus is doing, he's saying, actually, guys, this moment of spontaneous rejoicing, you use that. Use that. Use this rejoicing in this temporal experience to experience joy in your salvation. St. Augustine, he, he puts it this way. It's a, a longer quote, but bear with me here. I'm well aware that fruit and enjoyment are properly used with reference to one who enjoys and use with reference to a user. All right, so two categories. You can use things or you can just enjoy things. The difference clearly being that we are said to enjoy something, which is, gives, gives pleasure in and of itself, and without reference to anything else, whereas we use something when we seek it for some other pleasure. So two categories, use some things, enjoy other things. And he continues, he says, hence we should use temporal things. Use this moment of rejoicing that the demons submit to you. Use temporal things rather than enjoy them so that we may be fit to enjoy eternal blessings. He goes on, unlike the wicked who want to enjoy money, but to make use of God, not spending money for God, but worshiping God for money. And of course, when we, we see it like, you know, using God for money, we see the contrast. But Jesus is even saying something as good as rejoicing that your names, or rejoicing that the demons submit to you, even that you can use. It's a moment of spontaneous joy. Use that to bring your mind back to the joy of your salvation. All right. So what brings you spontaneous joy? I don't, I don't know what you guys are into, but maybe some of you are like into sports and you know, you're watching your team and they, you know, they win at the end. Like you just spontaneously erupt in joy. Use that. Hold on to that for just a second. Be like, wow, this is amazing. And just pause and be like, wow, hold on a sec. This, this victory right now is bringing me so much joy. But wow, this does not even compare to the victory that I have in Christ and the joy that I am going to experience when I'm realizing that joy when I'm realizing that victory. Or maybe some of you are into stories and you, you just get wrapped up in a good book or a good movie and you, as the story unfolds, you're like, yes, this is amazing. And you, you feel that spontaneous joy and use that, seize that moment and say, yes, this, this feels amazing, but man, this doesn't compare to the joy of the story that Jesus is writing about me right now. The joy as I, I see him write the story of the gospel out for all to see. Or maybe, you know, going to the beach, we're so excited to go to the beach later. Thank you so much, Mark. We are beach people. And so sitting on the beach, and even with like a one-year-old and a four-year-old, like I can still find, ice, you know, these fleeting moments of just, ah, this is, is good, right? And you're there, and you feel that, and you just seize that and say, wow, this feels so good. And if this feels good, what will it feel like when I stand on the shores of glory with my Savior? 
and you take that experience of joy, and you don't just enjoy it as an end in itself, but you use that to enjoy the eternal blessing. And what happens is you, you practice this, and you get good at this. What you find is you are rejoicing when things go bad, and you're rejoicing when things go good. And both things are actually drawing your attention back to the creator, to, to your salvation and the joy that you have in it. It's actually creating that fire, fueling that fire of joy in your life. You do this with anything. You do it with sex. Let me use sex as an example, just in case you dozed off there, because I now got your attention again. But, you know, sex, there's few things in life that can actually just naturally bring so much joy and delight and satisfaction as sex. And, you know, you have an experience of great sex with your spouse, emphasis on with your spouse, because that's the only experience of great sex. Uh, you have this great experience, you're like, oh, that was amazing. You think, oh, man, it, if this could feel this good, what, would it, what will it be like to enjoy the consummation of all things with the creator? If this is just a shadow of that, how great will that joy be? And there's few things in the world that can be as frustrating as sex, <laughs> right? When it's not good, when it's falling apart, when you're not having it, when, you know, you sometimes you, like, you feel it in your body, you're like, Arr! You know, sometimes some of you might be feeling right now in your bodies. I don't know. But when you're in that place, you can actually also use that as an opportunity to rejoice because you know that this, this angst, this loneliness, this isolation, this feeling of being undesired, whatever it is that you're feeling in that moment has an expiration date because the fullness of that was bore out for Jesus on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you rejoice whether it's good or it's bad, you find yourself rejoicing in your salvation. It's like that, that Tootsie Roll commercial, which I thought was from the 90s, but it turns out it was like from the 90s and the 80s and the 70s. They just kept repackaging it every 10 years. The Tootsie Roll commercial may be familiar where it's like everything I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. You guys remember that one? Well, all of a sudden, everything you see becomes an opportunity to rejoice because everything you see reminds you of the blood-bought salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. And you celebrate those moments. You rejoice in it. And you become strong. And you become savory in this generation to the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a good salvation, rewards that we can't even imagine. We can't. But you've given us these temporal rewards to just, Ah, give us just a whiff of what that'll be like. And we thank you also for the opportunity to, to suffer, because it, it gives us just a hint of what should have been our forever future, just a hint of what Jesus bore on the cross for us. I pray that your spirit would cultivate in us the fruit of joy as we work out this aspect of our salvation. We love you. We praise you. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.